problems with presents, shouting and parties. Join me as I talk about the Saturnalia on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi and welcome. My name's Neil and in this episode I delve into the Roman Midwinter Festival of the Saturnalia. I'll be looking into its origins and what the main elements of it were, including what was changed and what was added. There are some very interesting features of it, such as giving presents, and I'll be unpacking what you might get, what you might want, and the whole present buying conundrum. Yet it does feel very contemporary and very relevant at points in this regard. Before I start, just a couple of things. Firstly, this is an updated version of an earlier episode I did several years ago, which I've since deleted. In short, I listened back to it and realised there was a lot I'd actually missed out, or rather, there was a lot more I could add. Secondly, there will be episode notes as ever on ancientblogger.com, that's my website, and this will include a transcription, images, sources used, and any other information which I think will be helpful. I'm on social media, Ancient Blogger, on X, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, that's all ancient history content, by the way, and this podcast has its own account on X as well, at Hound Ancient. Finally, thanks for the reviews. They, they mean a lot, and I genuinely mean that. I create this podcast purely because I love talking about ancient history. I work full time and this will only ever be a hobby. I'm never going to make a penny out of it. And I'm happy with that. Reviews not only help with the magic algorithms to drive new listeners my way, but they can also act as a really good pick me up because, believe it or not, sometimes creating a podcast can kind of leave you a bit worn out. So thanks again for all those helpful emails and reviews. In conclusion then, if you've got the chance to leave a review on Spotify or Apple or the platform you listen to, then please do. And as I said, if you want to say hi, you can find me on those social media accounts. I always try and get back to people or just go old school with an email to ancientblogger at hotmail.com. Okay, that's that done. Let's begin. The Saturnalia was a Roman festival which was celebrated in the depths of winter. December the 17th is often given as the starting date of the celebrations which varied in duration as you'll hear. By the 1st century AD we have a festival which included feasting, drinking, wearing bright clothing, giving presents and giving slaves the day off. Oh, and shouting, you're Saturnalia, a lot, which can't have been annoying at all. However, in order to understand what this was for and how it had come about, we need to leave Rome and head east to Greece. It was here that the Cronea was celebrated. This took place in Attica during the summer, and it was a day when masters sat at the same table with their slaves and feasted. The Cronea was held in honour of the Greek deity Kronos, the father of Zeus, who, even for Greek myth, was a complicated character. Possibly the main myth you'd heard about him was how, after hearing that one of his children would usurp his rule, he ate them and thus kept them imprisoned in his stomach. These are gods after all. One of his children, Zeus, was hidden from him and avenged his siblings, leading to the downfall of Kronos and the rise to power of the Olympians, with Zeus in charge. Anything involving a feast, therefore, with Kronos might seem ironic, or even, pardon the pun, in bad taste. But the communal eating was about slaves and masters being considered equal, and this tapped into another myth about Kronos. After usurping his father, he ruled at a time called the Golden Age. It was a time of plenty where everything was easy and everyone was equal. 
At the Cronea, this was symbolised by the slaves being treated as equals. There was also another association, agriculture. Kronos seems to have been linked to this. In fact, that shouldn't be too much of a surprise. Growing crops and harvesting was fundamental to the ancient Greeks. Though the Cronea was an Attic festival, there were other festivals held in Greece where slaves were allowed to participate as equals. Caristius of Pergamum, who wrote in the 2nd century BC, noted there was a festival to Hermes on Crete where slaves were served by their masters. He also commented on a festival in the Peloponnese, which lasted several days, and on one day of it, masters served their slaves, and slaves even got to play dice. Finally, going further east, there was a festival at Babylon, which according to Barossum, who wrote in the 3rd century BC, involved slaves commanding their masters, and even one of the slaves made master of the house. This element, along with playing of dice, is worth noting for later on. As a concept then, the idea of a festival where slaves were temporarily freed or given rights wasn't uniquely Roman. Instead, and as you'll hear, Rome formed its own version of this type of festival and it seems that the Greek influence upon it was strong. Where the Cronea was named after Kronos, the Saturnalia was likewise named after a Roman deity, Saturn. Now it's not as simple as saying that Saturn was the Roman version of Kronos, though there are often shared narratives when dealing with Greek and Roman mythology. Instead, Saturn suddenly became his own god, and one particularly associated with Rome and agriculture. In Roman myth, he emerged as someone who travelled to Italy almost as a sort of mythical king-farmer combination, helping mortals understand agriculture and presiding over a golden age there. He certainly feels very different from Kronos, and in fact, by the time of the imperial period, he had his own mythology, which was really quite distinct. A very reasonable question you may have is why you'd have an agricultural deity celebrated in the depths of winter. Well, the reality was, is that this point in the agricultural year was crucial, and not just for Rome. There's an episode you can listen to in which I discuss the ancient Greek festival called the Hallower, which was held around the end of December. This was in honour of Demeter, the Greek goddess of agriculture, and the premise of it, much like the Saturnalia, was to ensure good relations with an agricultural deity, which would manifest in a good harvest in the spring. We can easily think of the summer as when things grew in ancient Greece and Rome, but the reality is that the height of the Mediterranean summer isn't particularly conducive to growth. It's just too hot. Those dark winter months after sowing in the autumn was when the real action took place, exactly the time you wanted to appeal to the necessary agricultural deity and get in their good books. In terms of when the Saturnalia started, it's difficult to tell, mainly because Romans didn't have their historians until the 3rd century BC and afterwards. Livy, who wrote in the late 1st century BC, did provide a date and a reason though. According to Livy, it was first set as a festal day in 497 BC, when the then new temple of Saturn had been dedicated in the Roman Forum. It's notable that the festival was seen as inherently linked to the temple, and possibly to Livy this made sense, though of course it's possible that the Saturnalia existed before this in a more basic form akin to the Cronea. What is also important to consider here is that Livy is placing it in the distant past from when he was writing about it. In a way, whether or not one was held in 497 BC is neither here or there because Livy felt it needed to be at the earliest times of Rome. Remember that Rome had only become a republic according to tradition 
in 509 BC. The dedication of this new temple to Saturn and the Saturnalia were early developments in Rome's New Republic. The early form the Saturnalia took was most likely a simple feast with slaves sat with their masters. However, this changed in 217 BC. For those with an ear for dates, you might recognise this as during the Second Punic War, when Hannibal had marched into Italy. This is true, and in a way, the change made did relate to him, but not directly. Let me explain. In 217 BC, Rome found itself at difficulties in dealing with Hannibal. In December of 218 BC, it had suffered a defeat against him at Trebia. This meant that the new consuls who would take charge around March of 217 BC would have had Hannibal top of their to-do list. This was a near-perfect opportunity for either to win fame and fortune, as an aspect of the Roman political system was that a consul only had one year to become as famous as he could. Being able to save Rome from an enemy general on Roman soil would guarantee that consul everlasting fame. In the spring of 217 BC, two new consuls lined up to take respective armies out against Hannibal. One of the consuls was Flaminius, and he was, let's say, very over-eager to meet up with his army and win that battle. So much so that he avoided undertaking the essential rituals and rites a new consul needed to take before he could do such a thing. He managed to sneak out of Rome and meet up with the army nearby. The Senate was horrified. This was highly impious, very irregular, and they even sent a messenger to demand that Flaminius return. But of course, he didn't. He did meet up with Hannibal at Trasimene in the summer of 217 BC and fell on the battlefield along with much of his army. Livy recorded in that year a number of portents were seen, which caused even more alarm at Rome, the implication being that the gods weren't happy with how Flaminius had conducted himself. The solution proposed was to include a ritual at the Saturnalia later that year, a ritual called the Lectisternium. This was a Greek ritual which involved placating the gods by having them join you at a feast. This was facilitated by having votive images of the gods placed on a couch which was then carried to the feast. The idea being that you would improve relations with them, you'd get them back on side. Though it might have been a new element to the Saturnalia, it wasn't necessarily new to Rome. In fact, in 399 BC, Livy recorded that the Lectisternium had been used to placate the gods during a pestilence. It's also an interesting side note to see how adaptive Roman customs could be to external cultures such as the Greeks. Rome didn't just change what formed the Saturnalia, the duration of it was also tinkered with. There's evidence that by the 1st century BC it was seven days. Under Augustus, it was brought down to three days. By the time of Claudius in the mid-first century AD, it was a five-day affair. During the Saturnalia, all official business was closed. No courts, no senate, no nothing. Rome certainly committed to it, and you might now realise how important it was to Rome and why, as I mentioned earlier, Livy was so keen to have it as a very old Roman tradition. As undoubtedly important and popular it was, the irony is that we don't have a single comprehensive description of one. What we do have are various sources often commenting on a particular aspect, the noise of the streets, or as you'll hear, the politics of presence. What I'm going to do now is give a brief outline of how a Saturnalia may have been in the 1st century AD, using some of those sources. I'm also going to unpack some of those elements further. For example, the issue of slaves being freed, and as I mentioned, 
the whole presence thing. Before I begin though, here's a quick word from the Partial Historians podcast, longtime friends of the podcast and very apt for this episode. Do you enjoy learning all about ancient Roman scandal? Well, look no further. I'm Dr. G from the Partial Historians podcast, and together with my co-host, Dr. Rad, we've published a book on the very scandalous regal period of early Rome. That's right, before the Roman Republic, Rome was ruled by kings. There's plenty of tall tales and legends to enjoy from this understudied period. In our book, Rex, The Seven Kings of Rome, we'll take you on a tour through the murders, the betrayals, and all the moments when the gods intervene in the lives of mortals. Rex, The Seven Kings of Rome, is three parts history with a dash of humour. You can pick up an ebook copy of Rex, The Seven Kings of Rome via Amazon or our online Gumroad store. Head to partialhistorians.com for all the details. And now, back to Ancient History Hound. Thanks to the Partial Historians there. I'm actually hoping to appear as a guest on their podcast next year. Anyway, back to the topic in hand. At Rome, the Saturnalia began on the 17th of December, or thereabouts, with sacrifices to Saturn at his temple, and then attention moved to the statue of the god himself. Woolen fetters, or bonds, which surrounded the statue's feet were loosened. Symbolically, this released the god in some capacity, possibly to invigorate the fields or enjoy the large public feast which then took place. But he wasn't the only god invited, though, because this was when the Lectisternium also took place. The early part of the celebration was held within the context of the public. It was a public sacrifice and a public feast. In the days following, no official business was conducted, as mentioned earlier, and this was a possible vulnerability for Rome. With the Senate unable to react, it did leave a window of opportunity for nefarious activities, and one big near-miss for Rome was something called the Catiline Conspiracy, this involved a character called Catiline attempting a coup in 63 BC. Though it failed, it was allegedly to be sprung during the Saturnalia, when everyone's attention was elsewhere, and the machinery of state was suspended, albeit getting well-oiled, as my nan would say. The Saturnalia transformed Rome into a backdrop of partying and a lot of noise, and even before the festival kicked off, the city was a buzz. Seneca commented on this in the 1st century AD when he wrote, and I quote, It is the month of December, and yet the city at this very moment is in a sweat. Licence is given to the general merrymaking. Everything resounds with mighty preparations. End quote. He also referred to the liberty-capped throng. This was a reference to the felt cap worn at the time, the pileus, which was traditionally worn by slaves when receiving their freedom. It became a popular choice of headwear during the festival. The Saturnalia look didn't just reside on what you wore on your head. The formal toga, or even smart tunic, was ditched for the Sithesis, always have problems saying that, a multi-coloured robe. 
Marshall, who you'll be hearing a lot about later on, wrote about a character called Carasanus, who still wore the toga at this time, and an argument I've read is that this was ironic. The Saturnalia had a chaotic and subversive motif. Perhaps wearing a toga when you shouldn't have was the edgy or really Saturnalian thing to do. The Saturnalia didn't just have its own outfits, it even had its own shout. The cry of Yule Saturnalia first became a thing when the Lectosternium was introduced in 217 BC, at least according to Livy. This in fact became a bit of an in-joke, which I'll come to later. By the 1st century BC, the festival had become highly popular, or at least Catullus, a poet of the day, thought when he referred to it as the best of days. In the imperial period, emperors might use the Saturnalia to win popularity. Statius, a Roman poet of the 1st century AD, wrote about a sumptuous Saturnalia under the reign of Domitian, where games were held which involved races, women gladiators, and both nuts and treats being thrown to the public. As well as the public feast and street parties, there were the private parties, and at this point I need you to imagine just how varied these may have been. For example, a Saturnalia party hosted by a rich Roman must have been a chaotic affair. Perhaps the poorer Romans had a more communal experience of it. After all, they may not have had the space to host. It may have inflicted upon some the fatigue we have when trying to ensure that you see everyone during seasonal celebrations. I've got some friends who need more or less a PA or someone to help them organise where they should be and who they should be seeing at any point over the Christmas period here in the UK. Within the realm of the private celebration, we meet a fundamental of the Saturnalia, which I mentioned earlier, that slaves were afforded some level of freedom. I say level of freedom because it's plausible that some slaves were still required to work. All that feasting and eating at the wealthy Romans' party, well, that wouldn't have been possible without slaves, or at least some slaves doing the hard work. It may have been that the freedom afforded to slaves depended on a number of things. If you had a villa outside Rome populated by them, you might imagine all of them just given some time off. Cato the Elder, in his work on agriculture, noted that slaves on his villa were given three and a half litres of wine each. This does come with it the caveat that wine in both ancient Greece and Rome was mostly lower in alcoholic content than today, and that was before you'd mix it with water. In any case, though, I'm sure they enjoyed it. Perhaps in smaller households it would have been easier for slaves to join in. However, in large households, perhaps some slaves were given more time off than others, a sort of reward system with some allowed complete freedom and others working a rotor or something which managed the logistical challenges of having an entire workforce you'd normally rely on suddenly not working. Freedom for slaves came not only in what they could do, but what they could say. Backchat or just honest opinions were encouraged, but this was a double-edged sword. We get unique insight into this from Epictetus, a source from the late 1st century AD. He had once been a slave and commented on how being too honest may not be a great idea when that master-slave relationship was reinstated a few days later. This element, the idea of a slave free to talk honestly, lent itself to a bit of an injo, which I mentioned earlier, and this related to anyone speaking above their station or being accused of doing so. And if they did, they were met with a reference to the Saturnalia. Take, for example, a freedman called Narcissus, who was sent by Claudius to give instructions to some soldiers. Try as he might, when he made to outline what needed to be done, the soldiers just shouted him down, saying, "You're Saturnalia. In Petronius's work, The Satyricon, there's a slave who speaks back, 
and he's asked whether it was December yet. There have been arguments around the practice of giving slaves temporary freedom and allowing them to dine and mix with their masters. Did it act as a social valve, allowing tensions between slave and master to ease? Or was it a reward system, as I referred to earlier? In the episode I did on helots, a people the Spartans subjugated and who worked the fields for them, I spoke about a possible hierarchy of helots, where some were afforded responsibility over other helots. It certainly seems to have been the case that in a large household staffed by slaves, there would have been some who were in charge of others, so slaves in charge of other slaves, and perhaps that responsibility, as I said, came with better rewards. Perhaps then, and this is obviously all speculative, the opportunities afforded to slaves were mapped onto this hierarchy which differed depending on how many slaves you had and what kind of attitude you had towards them. Slaves weren't the only marginalised group in the festival. Both women and children must have been a part of what went on. Again, their involvement was likely aligned to social expectations or perhaps the attitudes relative to that household. For example, a respectable Roman wife may have had a meal with the slaves but then withdrew when things got ramped up. You might imagine then a rich family hosting a party with wives and non-slave women taking to a separate part of the house, though hopefully also taking with them some good wine. As for children, again, this may have sat with the various ways people celebrated, though there is a story which involved a 14-year-old, the then Roman emperor, singing and a nasty outcome. The story comes to us from Tacitus, and I quote, During the amusements of the Saturnalia, the two young men had thrown dice for who should be king, and Nero had won. To the others he gave various orders, causing no embarrassment, but he commanded Britannicus to get up, come into the middle, and sing a song. Nero hoped for laughter at the boy's expense, since Britannicus was not accustomed even to sober parties, much less to drunken ones. But Britannicus composedly sang a song implying his displacement from his father's home and throne. This aroused sympathy, and in the frank atmosphere of a nocturnal party, it was unconcealed. Nero noticed the feeling against himself, and hated Britannicus all the more. End quote. This event dated to AD 55, and Nero was a young emperor, only 18 himself. Nero's cruel behaviour may have been in a way rational, because Britannicus was technically a threat to him. I say technically, because Britannicus may have actually had no designs on the top job, but he was the son of the previous Emperor Claudius, and as such, he could be used as a pawn to challenge Nero, and perhaps by treating him this way at the Saturnalia, Nero was attempting to reduce his credibility. Britannicus's success was fleeting. He died in mysterious circumstances shortly after this event. Obviously, a coincidence. In this story, you'd also have heard of reference made to the king, That is a feature of the Saturnalia, where a person may be chosen at random to be in charge and they could ask anyone to do what they wanted. Obviously, how this manifested must have varied. For example, there may have been a restricted pool of candidates who could roll dice for it or be chosen by lot in some way, or perhaps not. Perhaps everyone had the chance, including slaves. Lucian, a 2nd century AD writer, commented on what a king might make you do. And this included libeling yourself, dancing naked, or carrying a flute girl three times around the house. Lucian correctly pointed out that the main benefit of being a king was that it offered safety from being asked to do the sort of ridiculous things that a king might ask you to do. 
But it wasn't all crazy antics. Aulus Gellius, a 2nd century AD grammarian and writer, gave an account of what he and some other Roman friends did over Saturnalia when living in Athens. They spent it playing a trivia game, albeit one which dealt with questions about history, correcting commonly misinterpreted tenets of philosophy, the investigation of a rare word, or, drumroll here, the obscure use of the tense of a verb. Well, you know, each to their own. Lucian mentioned knuckle bones, and this was a form of gaming of chance, as these were rolled as we might do dice. Chance was important not only for the purposes of gaming, but also because it brought with it the concept of equality, in that anyone, assuming you aren't cheating in some way, had the same chance of rolling a number or such. Augustus reportedly loved playing the dice at the Saturnalia, and in fact, during the year as well. Suetonius, who reported this, also wrote that Rome's first emperor would give mischievous gifts and presents during the Saturnalia. And this brings me to the whole shebang of giving and receiving gifts, because as you'll hear, a primary source for Saturnalian gifts is Marshall, a poet of the first century AD. Marshall's writings covered a wide range of topics and were often, shall we say, colourful. His epigrams contained around 223 gift ideas, running from the types of things you might expect through to the somewhat bizarre. I went through this list and tried to group them into broad categories. Here we go then. I'll start with what we might call tableware. There were common or basic cups, but then there were jeweled and crystal ones, and even a golden cup was listed. Dishes sat on the same spectrum, basic ones through to those inlaid with gold. What's notable, even within this small sample, is the extra information provided by Marshall in respect of where the objects might come from. The Kumeyan plate, which was made of earth from Kumei. Saguntine cups, which suggested that they came from Saguntum in Spain, or of that design. Even Etruscan vases were mentioned. Moving from the table to the table in question, by that I mean furniture, there were tables made of maple wood, citron wood, and even inlaid with tortoise shell. Next to them, you might wish to recline on a couch, and this was another option which must have been a real showpiece gift. Sometimes it wasn't just the expense of the items which indicated their status, but rather what they might be used for. Snow was an expensive item which was sometimes used to chill wine, more likely during the summer months. A snow bag, snow decanter and snow strainer must have been welcomed when the summer came round. Staying with the more expensive, how about pictures? We don't think of these as options, but those of Hyacinthus and Danae were included. Artwork was really an option here, from small silver statuettes of Minerva to a terracotta Hercules. And if you wanted a real statement piece, what about a terracotta mask of a red-haired German? As Marshall commented, this is also good for scaring kids. If you wanted a nice rest, then pillows would be a good idea, though perhaps even more so mattress stuffing made from woolen strands. A cheaper option was also given with the nickname of circus stuffing. It was made of reeds, as Marshall noted, for the poor man. Possibly my favourite item from this category, which may easily sit in the next one I'll come to, was a back scratcher in the form of a hand. I'm sure you can buy those today. As I said, this item could easily belong in what I've termed health and appearance. So we have balms, a medicine chest, a barber set, as well as hair dye and hair ointment. With the barber set, we can confidently assume that this was for a man, but the hair dye may have been for both men and women. And the same can be said for the combs, toothpick, 
earpick, which sounds terrifying, and tooth powder for those whiter-than-white toga teeth. Items for women aren't numerous, though this comes with a caveat that a lot of the gifts seem to have been for the use of both men and women, all those cups, for example, and the furniture. However, a breastband for the mistress, corset and girdle were included in Marshall's list, and those are translations, by the way, just in case you wonder. The notion of gifts for women does bring with it more questions. For example, aside from the breastband, were these items given by women to women? The gifts I've just mentioned carry us on into the category of clothing. There are many options, and I suspect that these wouldn't have been cheap. Starting at the top, we have a hat, a golden hairpin, and hoods. The Gallic hood came from the Santoni tribe, a Gallic people from the western central region of Gaul, and this had a wonderful detail about it, which I'll come to shortly. There were cloaks, leather and wool ones, the former seemingly to be worn in the rain. A toga must have been expensive, but also ironic. The toga wasn't worn at this time, as mentioned earlier. The synthesis definitely was, and that was on the list. Perhaps it was good to have a backup. Moving to the feet, there were slippers, and also socks made from the beard of a goat, which sound wonderful. Perhaps not so much for the goat, though. With goats, I can segue into pets. Birds were popular, magpies, parrots and nightingales, but also dwarf mules and a small type of horse from northern Spain. Puppies and greyhounds also featured, and of course, a monkey. Now, a few moments ago, I mentioned a wonderful detail, and this related to the Gallic hood, which apparently resembled a smaller type of hood, which monkeys sometimes wore. I don't know why, but this does not surprise me. For the avid reader, I've not got an obvious segue from small monkey attire as you might expect, there were works from parchments or similar. Cicero, Homer, Sallust, Livy and Ovid were all named as authors whose works you could give or receive. Moving into the category of hobbies, there was wool. In fact, there were various types of wool, all sorts of colours and qualities of this. For those who wanted a hobby which was a bit more energetic, there were dumbbells, a discus and different sized balls. Balls of various sizes might be encountered at the baths. No, no, stop that. Because it was a place where you'd often wrestle or play ball prior to using the facilities. Indeed, strigils for scraping the sweat from your skin were another possible gift, along with flasks to carry the oil in. Not just any oil flask, though. Statement pieces such as flasks made of rhino horn. There were quite a few options then that could be used at the baths. The final hobby related to gaming and dice, which, as you've heard, was very popular at this time. You could give someone dice or even a gaming table, surely the ten box of its day. And on that distasteful joke, I'll head to food, which covers both what you could eat and those who could prepare it. There was a sausage and even a pig with a priapus made of pastry. Let's just say that must have been a mouthful. And in terms of who could help with this, Marshall referred to a cook and confectioner. Perhaps these were specialist slaves, though we meet the quandary I mentioned earlier regarding how a slave might do anything during this period. Perhaps there were professionals well rewarded for working at this time of year. Again, the idea that everyone in Rome was doing nothing but having a good time needed to be aligned with the practicalities of it all. Interestingly, Marshall also referred to a buffoon and comedians. Presumably, these performed during the party, or perhaps whilst you were eating. As much fun as the Saturnalia was, there was also the problems with giving gifts that we experience in the modern day. Take Marshall's complaint over a gift or series of gifts that he received, and I quote, 
you have sent me as a present for the Saturnalia umber everything which you have received during the past five days. Twelve notebooks of three tablets each, seven toothpicks together with which came a sponge, a tablecloth, a wine cup, half bushel of beans, a basket of Piscinian olives and a black jar of Lalitanian wine. There also came some small Syrian figs, some candied plums and a heavy pot of figs from Libya. They were a present worth, I believe, scarcely 30 small coins altogether. And these were brought by eight tall Syrian slaves. How much more convenient would it have been for one slave to have brought me, as he might without trouble, five pounds weight of silver? End quote. Umber is guilty of that most cardinal of sins, re-gifting. And Marshall also adds to it that age-old repost of, you know, you could have just given me the cash. Elsewhere, Marshall raised other issues. What if you sent someone a gift and they didn't send you one back? Also, what if you gave someone something and their gift was nowhere near the value of yours? Marshall referred to the whole business and politics of gift-giving as crafty and mischievous, concluding that gifts are like fish hooks. This is actually more of a criticism within the context of the client-patron relationship at Rome, where a wealthy patron might have many less wealthy clients. In that situation, what do you send a rich patron exactly? Well, Marshall suggested you just don't send anything at all. Statius, the poet I mentioned earlier, had exactly this problem and bemoaned where he had sent a well-bound book of his own works, his patron had sent him a book of low-quality speeches. Worse still, the pages were mouldy. It's possibly a bit tongue-in-cheek, but Statius went on to list equally underwhelming gifts his patron could have selected. There was also something in ancient Rome which is certainly in play today, the deliberately naff gift. Upon receiving a book of poetry which Catullus described as both terrible and detestable, he wrote how he may well send an equally awful set of poetry in return. This exchange was between himself and his strong friend Calvus, so we can be confident that this was deliberate. Proof that the art of a deliberately bad gift is a bit of a joke goes back a long way. Finally, when it came to receiving gifts, you might try to use the Saturnalia as cover for stuff you just shouldn't have. In AD 102, Julius Bassus was tried in the Senate for receiving gifts when he was a governor. He couldn't deny these because he had them, but instead he tried to argue that all the stuff he received, which he shouldn't have, was either given to him on his birthday or during the Saturnalia. And in case you wondered, yes, he's acquitted which kind of sums up the nature of politics in ancient Rome very nicely. The Saturnalia was a complex festival, and one which changed over time, but it retained a popularity throughout Rome's history. There's even a reference to it in AD 448, where it was listed merely as a slaves festival. The involvement of slaves, and indeed what they did exactly, is perhaps its most intriguing feature. As I've attempted to sketch out, those slaves were free, it's difficult to understand how this manifested exactly. And in a sense, it's almost a fool's errand because what I get from the Saturnalia was that it very much depended on the house or family who were celebrating it. Were you to travel back to Rome during the festival, I suspect you'd find it being enjoyed in many different ways, from all-in parties to those looking to lock themselves away and just let everyone else get on with it. Pliny, in one of his letters, actually states that's what he did. He had a room he'd just go to during the Saturnalia and let the slaves get on with it. 
The festival turned much of Rome on its head, the subversive qualities manifesting at every level. Take, for example, the lack of official business, but also the celebrations occurring in the homes and streets. No longer were these places of business, of traders moving goods, and the regular activities of the day. Instead, people wore different clothes, they acted differently, and there was that whole Eol Saturnalia thing going on. Rome itself as a place had discarded formality, and an entirely unique set of social dynamics must have made it feel very unusual. All of this in the depths of midwinter, and I wonder what effect this must have had on people, how it changed their mood, how the slaves must have felt and reacted to this temporary state of servitude. And though it was formed of experiences and elements which seem oh so far from us, there are many ways in which it does relate. Working out who you needed to invite, whether to host or who to visit, I dare say you've had either those discussions yourself or heard them. Of course, there's also the issue of presence. Many of the ones which Marshall described are similar, if not the same as today, but some are very much not. Overarching this is the whole difficulty of knowing what to get and the wider politics of presence. I'm now going to wrap things up. Surely you can excuse me one last pun. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you get the chance to leave a review or rate, please do. But more importantly, look after yourself. And I mean that seriously. This time of year can be tough on everyone. Until next time, keep safe, stay well, and Yule Saturnalia.